Well, good morning, friends. Uh, I think the job has already been done. He just preached the word, so <laughs> amen. Uh, <laughs> I must say, I did not realize that it was Mother's Day, um, because in the U.S., it is Mother's Day. It, we celebrate Mother's Day in May. Um, so I probably would have shortened the passage and not included the verse. Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that have never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Not exactly the best reading for a Mother's Day sermon. Um, but regardless, happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. And while I have the stage, I have my parents who will be watching this later on today. So if we could wave to the camera and say happy Mother's Day to Connie. So happy Mother's Day, Mom. I cannot promise that this week's sermon is going to be as exciting as last week with the fire drill in the middle of it. Um, and I will make no theological comments on what it means to have a fire drill go off in the middle of your sermon. Um, whether that's a good thing, that the sermon was so on fire that we had to evacuate the building, or the other direction, that the sermon was going the other way. So, no comments there. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are here among us. And we ask that your spirit be with us as we listen to the words of your son on the cross. Amen. We continue our conversation this week with Jesus as he utters his last words scattered across the four Gospels. This week we are in Luke for the first time, which has a slightly different account from some of the others and includes the first last word. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus has just been put on trial with the teachers of the law determined to get rid of him, who all the civic leaders had found innocent. At their insistence, Pilate yields and sentences Jesus to death by crucifixion on the cross. We see Jesus' familiar road to the cross, his crying out for the people, telling the women to prepare for what is to come, and finally, he is hung there by Roman soldiers between two criminals. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they are doing. Luke writes Jesus' first words on the cross as words of deep compassion, crying out to his Father in heaven. I want to go word by word through this sentence to see what wisdom Christ teaches us from his first last word. Father. Jesus begins with a cry out to his Father in heaven. Father here connotates Jesus' Jesus's intimacy with God, his closeness with God. Here, in his moment of greatest suffering, he calls out to his Father, whom he is closer to any other person in the universe. It recalls how we all cry out to our parents in moments of hurt or anguish. Jesus sets an example for us, similar to what David preached on a few weeks ago, where Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In our moments of great anguish, we can cry out to our Father in heaven. Father, forgive. The second word out of Jesus' mouth is forgiveness, a word already familiar to anyone who has read any of the Gospels. It recalls Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, as he taught his disciples to pray as we just did, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass or sin against us. And a few verses later in Matthew 14 and 15, in 6, 14 and 15, he says the very serious words, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Some of Jesus' dying words are again to emphasize the importance of forgiveness. 
He who had nothing to ask for forgiveness for instead asks God to forgive those who have wronged him. Forgiveness is, of course, a central part of our Christian faith. But I'm not sure if we always get it right. Sometimes I fear that we have cheapened forgiveness in our modern evangelical understanding. I was able to attend a safeguarding training yesterday put on by the Eastern Baptist Association, and our second session ended with a brief discussion about forgiveness. We had just spent the whole day discussing how to put into place policies and procedures to create a culture of safety for the most vulnerable in our churches, and we ended on the challenge of forgiveness. Churches have often been guilty of adopting a forgive-and-forget theology that pressures those who have been wronged into forgiving those who have wronged them. In the worst of instances, we allow those in positions of power to co-opt forgiveness into a tool of oppression, forcing victims to express forgiveness to their wrongdoers in order for them to be right with Christ. They quote this this verse that I just mentioned above and tell victims that God will not forgive them if they do not forgive their abusers. This is nothing short of spiritual abuse. Yes, forgiveness is the end goal that Jesus encourages, but we get into very dangerous territory when we start to assume the authority to say who God is forgiving. We are not Christ, nor can we speak with his authority on who and who is not forgiven in God's eyes. We must do all we can to build churches of reconciliation, but we cannot force forgiveness on anyone nor pretend like we have God's authority on matters of forgiveness. Father, forgive them. This them is a mysterious and important word. Jesus doesn't specify here who he is referring to. He does not name the exact them, but we have inferred through the years based off of the story who he was talking to. Perhaps he was referring to the Roman soldiers who have just nailed him to the cross. Or he could be referring to the two criminals on either side of him. Or he could be more broadly referring to the mob that has just fought for him to be crucified. Or a very popular and problematic them Christians like to think of is Jesus referring to the Jews or the Jewish teachers of the law who just insisted on his execution. In a modern evangelical reading, this them is all of us. Jesus asking God to forgive us, the individual sinners whose bad deeds are what ultimately nailed him to the cross. Jesus' words of forgiveness extend, of course, to all of the above on this list. But I think we can get into more trouble when we start to put Jesus' words in our own mouth and point fingers at them. God, forgive those other people who need to be saved. They have no idea what they're doing. By wrongly assuming the authority to point at others in need of forgiveness, we have done so much harm. And I very intentionally use the word we have done so much harm. Perhaps one of the most insidious perversions of of us pointing at them is the anti-Semitic narrative that has been justified with scripture references like ones that we read this morning. Christians for thousands of years have pointed to this saying, Jesus knew that the Jews were the ones that killed him and in need of forgiveness. This has led to the narrative that the whole Jewish community is responsible for the death of Jesus and has thus warranted everything from anti-Semitic prejudice all the way to the Holocaust. In the U.S., at least, there has been a dramatic and troubling increase in anti-Semitic actions in the past years, and I think it is our responsibility to discourage those narratives every time we open the text, especially during Lent as we lead lead up to Easter. Now, you might say, Will, 
we aren't anti-Semitic Christians here in our church, so why do we need to talk about this? Again, I come back to the word we. As Western evangelical Christians, we have put such a strong emphasis on having a, our own personal, individual relationship with Christ. For many, the, the pinnacle of faith is truly expressed by asking for personal for- forgiveness of our sins and then maintaining that personal, individual relationship with Christ onward for there. For us Baptists, we add in our own theology to, from our history of rejecting any intercessor between us and God. This theology is not necessarily bad. However, such a hyper-focus on the individual makes us lose out on a faith that was always meant to be lived out in community. Remember, these are Jesus' words on the cross, not ours. And when he did instruct us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, he told us to say, forgive us our trespasses. Again, as Baptists, we like to take this a little bit further of our hyper-focus on individualism to our individual church, the autonomy and life of our local church. Maybe we might associate with a slightly broader view of church, and maybe Baptists in general we might claim. But this is very them thinking. Well, we are the good affirming church. It's those Baptists that need to repent and ask for forgiveness. Or Baptists have it all figured out, but it's the Anglicans that have to get their act together. Or, Protestants certainly have it right. God forgive those Catholics. They have lost their way. And so on and so on. But it's we, not them. We, this big C church, the whole church. We, the whole body of Christ, spread out across the world in all of its delightful and frustrating diversity. It's easy to claim we for communion Sundays for a kumbaya moment around the communion table but we quickly quickly throw our brothers and sisters under the bus when anything wrong happens or has happened in our Christian history. The Crusades, the Inquisition, no, 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 that was the Catholics, that's not us, that's them. The Holocaust, Lord, forgive those Lutherans, that was them, not us. Slavery, segregation, apartheid, systemic racism. Yeah, that was Baptist, but it wasn't, we're not those kind of Baptists, that was them. Woman barred from leadership, Conversion therapy for gay and trans people? Again, we're not those kind of Baptists. That's them. There is a sobering, if not troubling, truth in the view of non-Christians who see the church from the outside. We on the inside know all of the messiness of church history and the splits and the variations of practice that we use to justify the difference between us and our Christian brothers and sisters. But on the outside, we all look the same. It's part of the reason that we have lost so many people in the modern church, because we are all lumped together as a group, the backwards, anti-science, homophobic, transphobic, anti-feminist, child-abusing Christians. For better or for worse, we don't choose our Christian family. For better or for worse, when we take on the name of Christ, we sit at the table and are associated with all of those others who also proclaim Christ. We are in no position to say them. We can only say us. Father, forgive us. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. I was at a conference in Naples two weeks ago um, called the Refugee Highway Partnership. I know, I know. Suffering for the Lord in southern Italy. You're such a saint, Will. Thank you for the work you're doing. The Refugee Highway Partnership is a network of different evangelical groups working with refugees across Europe. 
About 75% of the people who go to the conference every year are amazing. They're lovely people who have a calling to serve and advocate for the dignity of displaced peoples. And the other 25% of the folks come make my skin completely crawl. They are the ones who are obsessed with converting Muslims and say things like, God caused all of this violence in the Middle East so that all the Muslims who have been closed off to us can come to Europe so we can convert them to Christianity, so we can save them from the oppression of Islam. I've heard that almost verbatim from a podium at one of these conferences. I don't downplay the seriousness of the oppression that people face in some Islamic government-run countries. However, what real freedom do they get if they escape and then are converted to fundamentalist Christianity? In their zeal to share Christ, our fundamentalist brothers and sisters have no idea what they're doing. They have no idea the chains that they are placing on women who have fled from oppressive regimes. They have no idea the spiritual abuse and trauma they are subjecting LGBTQ refugees to who just want to live. Their good intentions, their loving actions, which they claim is freedom in Christ, is nothing other than trading one set of chains for another. There is an old saying that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. In my reading for school, I came across a deepened, more dramatic version of this saying from a liberationist theologian named Albert Hernandez that says, No evil dreamed up by Satan can outdo the atrocities committed by good, decent people attempting to purge such evil forces from this world. Some of the most diabolical actions, enough to make the very demons of hell cringe in shame, are committed by those who consider themselves to be righteous, chosen ones in the spiritual battle against the forces of evil. The history of faith is the history of good intentions gone wrong. In our story, the teachers of the law thought they were doing the right thing in getting rid of Jesus. By traditional Jewish accounts, Jesus was not what the Messiah was meant to look like, sound like, or act like. We have some beautiful texts that we read from Isaiah that seem to match up a little bit, but in first century Judaism, there was a lot of different understandings of what it meant to be the Messiah, the son of David, the son of God. And Jesus didn't exactly fit that narrative. And his claims to be the actual son of God were quite scandalous and almost in line with other pagan religious or with pagan religious understandings. Think Hercules, the son of Zeus. The teachers of the law had a responsibility to their people and to God to root out any false prophets prophets, and to protect themselves and God's people from God's judgment. Jesus was garnering a movement and could potentially lead the people astray. Though it's perhaps difficult to see, you could argue that they had good intentions when they, sought to bring, to, to, when they sought to bring Jesus to an end. This is true of Christians throughout our shared history, who even in the most perverted of the cases that I listed earlier had some good intentions behind their awful deeds. My fundamentalist friends at the conference are no different. We have done so much harm in our quest to proclaim Christ. Yet again, we cannot directly speak Jesus' words for our own because we do know what we're doing. After 2,000 years of getting it wrong as the church, we cannot really claim ignorance any longer. We, the whole church, should know better by now. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Those are Jesus' words of compassion that we don't have the moral authority to say or to claim for ourselves. 
for us to adopt these words, we have to make some translations to responsibly use them. We must wrestle with these words, trusting in the compassion of our Father in heaven, wrestling with the messy calling that Jesus has towards for forgiveness, wrestling with the reality of our broken church family and the sins that have committed in Christ by our brothers and sisters. In Christ's name by our brothers and sisters. And we have to wrestle with a call towards knowing and doing better. Perhaps a translated prayer from Jesus' words on the cross would look something like this. Father, God who loves us like one of your own, God, who has been so faithful and near to us, we cry out to you in our anguish. We cry out to you in our depravity and despair. Hear us. Father, forgive us for thinking we ever had the authority to choose who is forgiven and how forgiveness takes place. Forgive us, God, for only you have the authority and power to do so. May we not cheapen the forgiveness that you show us, and may your compassion toward us make us more compassionate and forgiving to the world around us. Lord, forgive us for pointing fingers at them. Have mercy on us, your whole church, all of our brothers and sisters, including our crazy conspiracy theory uncles and fundamentalist aunts. Have mercy on all of us who claim to know you. Forgive us for splintering and breaking up the beautiful body of Christ. Forgive us the sins we have committed in your name, for the ways in which we have so frequently blasphemed your name. Forgive all of us, God, for thinking we do not need forgiveness. Forgive us the ways that we have co-opted your goodness and freedom into chains of oppression. Lord, have mercy on your church. And Lord, forgive us especially when we harm others and ourselves in the quest for doing good. Forgive us our best intentions. Give us the wisdom and the discernment to know better and to do better. Give us the humility to never assume that we know what is best for the world and for taking authority that was only ever yours to have. Help us to know better and to do better, God. May this be a prayer for our Lenten season as we look to the compassionate example of our Lord on the cross. Amen.